we're in seventh grade, quick recap. And then uh, we have two seats open on our board. And so if you would like to nominate somebody, you can do so. The deadline for nomination is the 7th of February. And uh, if you have a question about the requirements of being a board member, you can see me. And we'll go through all the details here in this service. But that will be the 21st. And then the night before that, on the 20th, we want to invo invite all of our couples and our married uh, spouses together on the 20th at 5 p.m. here at the church. We're going to have dinner together and a great time. It's always a blast, and it will strengthen your marriage and your relationship. And uh, we're looking forward to a great time of that. And so you want to be getting prepared for that on the 20th. And then one that we haven't posted yet, but we've talked about it. We're going to do it on the 7th of March. We're going to call it I Love My Church Day. And we'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. I Love My Church on March 7th. Praise God. And uh, we want to read from Matthew chapter 11 today. Uh, I quoted this and actually used this passage of scripture last week. And I'm going to come at it from a different angle or a different perspective uh, today. But Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse number 28, it simply says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Today I come to you, not really as an entertainer, not as a teacher, if you will, although I hope that you get something from this message, but today I come to you like the United States Postal Service. I've got a letter in my hand, an invitation, if you will. And if you find this invitation addressed to you, it is your privilege to accept what God is getting ready to offer to you. Right. So the title of my message is an attractive invitation. You so see that this is the kind of God that <clears throat> uh, offers this invitation to whosoever will. It really all happened in a moment of time. It, but it was a remarkable moment. It was an amazing moment, actually. On the face of everything, this moment was just like any other moment. But in reality, everything was getting ready to change. And there was no other moment in the history of man like the history of this moment. And it was that moment of what we call the incarnation. The moment that deity took upon himself humanity. The moment that God became a man. And while all around the, uh, the creatures of earth wandered about their own business in that little town of Bethlehem so many years ago, deity showed up. The divinity of God showed up, if you will. The omnipotent one, the one that was all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, ever-existing, became a little baby. He made himself breakable. The spirit, which is what John chapter 4 says that God is, became pierceable the day that he was born as a little baby. We've been talking about this a little bit on Grace College Monday nights at 7 o'clock. He, he that was larger than the universe became an embryo. God as a fetus. He was given eyebrows and elbows knees and toes. He floated around in the amniotic fluids of Mary, the God of all creation. You see, when God entered humanity or entered the earth, he did not enter with a flash of light or an unapproachable conqueror. He came as just a little baby whose cries were heard by the simple carpenter and his betrothed bride. The hands that first held God were worn and calloused and dirty. There was not a great parade of dignitaries. There was not a great celebration. People weren't called in from all over the world to, to honor. CNN and Fox News and NBC and ABC didn't pick up on the birth because there was Nobody else around. It was just a couple of people in a cave. And for about 33 and a half years or so, 
this boy, this man would suffer and feel everything that you and I could and would feel. If you're here today and you think that nobody else has ever felt like you felt or been through what you've been through or don't understand where you're coming from, listen, there is one who is above all that's been through it all and seen it all. His name is Jesus Christ. The God of the universe became a man and he felt everything that we felt. He grew tired, he grew weary, he grew hungry, he needed to bathe. Don't think of that, God having to take a shower. He got colds, he was burped as an infant. His feelings got hurt. He knew what a headache was. He knows just what you're going through. Because the Bible reveals in the book of Hebrews that he went through them all. You see, we often like to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Don't we? We, we like to think about the conquering king. The king of kings and the lord of lords. We like to compartmentalize God and say God is this great deity off in the distance controlling. He's got the whole world in his hands. You see, we like keeping it in that setting, but oftentimes we don't bring his humanity. You see, we try to, I have yet to see in any Christmas play or production, I should say that, we, we have seen one, in, in, where the, the, the stage that is the, the stable, the cave, if you will, or, or where the manger is. I, I have yet to see what one of them really looked like based on what history tells us. Because we try to clean up the manure from around the manger. However, one year I did a drama in Delaware and we had live animals. <laughs> Bob never do that again. <laughs> Poor John Wilcox. If he watches this, he pastors, I believe, in Florida now, but he, he, he had to deal with a live sheep. <clears throat> it was pretty real. <laughs> but we like to wipe the sweat out of God's eyes. We pretend that Jesus never stormed. We don't think of him as somebody that had to blow his nose or hit his finger with a hammer in his dad's carpenter shop. You see, Jesus is easier or more encouraging to us if we leave him outside of his humanity and just recognize him for his deity and that he holds it all in control and that he sets powers up and he puts powers down and he controls the seasons and he's holding the earth and he's holding the galaxies in his hands and that's where we like to put him, but sometimes we fail to realize that as a man, God became like you and I and dealt with all the things that you and I deal with in order for us to get back to him. You see, there's a passage of scripture just a couple of pages over in Matthew chapter 13 that I have often heard mispreached, misunderstood, and I want to share it with you today. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And don't worry, we're going to get back to the passage we let off the message with here in a minute. But you need to see this. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. I want to say that again. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he has, and buys that field. Now when I hear that message preached, that passage preached, most often it is declaring the kingdom of heaven being the gospel, and you and I would do well to give up whatever we could to grab a hold of the treasure of the gospel. That's not what this scripture is saying. 
we need to look at this scripture a little bit closely, although it applies because the gospel is such a treasure and we really should give up everything for the gospel because that will get us to where we really want to be. But this passage of scripture is revealing something I believe much deeper and much stronger and much more powerful because in all other instances throughout scripture, the field is always referencing the world around us. Pray ye therefore laborers to go out into the field because they are already ripe and ready to harvest. And we have no problem recognizing that as those that are around us, the mass of humanity and the world that's around us. And, 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 and so the field refers to the world. Therefore, I believe in this passage, the field refers to the world or to those that are in the world, if you will. And so if you go on, the kingdom of God cannot be bought nor sold. So there's no real way that you and I can be referred to as the man in this passage because the kingdom of God cannot be bought or sold. So who does this man refer to? I suggest to you today that it refers to the humanity of God himself, the man Christ Jesus. As, he, as a man, he walked among us. He felt our pain, his questions and anxieties. And in this passage of scripture, we see that Jesus finds a treasure in the middle of a field. And he gets so excited that he goes and he pays it all to buy the treasure. And not only the treasure, but the field. You see, as I was studying this passage a few years ago, I began to look at it and the Lord brought to memory something uh, going all the way back at the Old Testament. You see, if you go all the way back to the beginning, the Bible says that God got upset with his creation. He got a little irritated with men and women. In fact, the Bible goes so strongly to say that it repented God that he ever created them. And so what does God do? He sends the floods and he saves eight souls by grace in an ark that he seals up. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the waters from the deep spring forth and the flooding rains come down and he destroys all that is there except for the eight people that are in the ark and the animals that were with them. But something different happens. Once God gets on the other side of the flood, and I believe that he looks at mankind in a different way now. He looks at mankind, he made, a, he made a promise to Noah that he would never destroy the world by a flood anymore. It's the reason why we get our rainbows every once in a while. It's a reminder of the promise of God. But then he, he so he's looking at man and, and I can just see him starting to get frustrated with man again. Just before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Scripture, it's what is called in theological terms the intertestamental period, 400 years of silence where God doesn't seem to be speaking. And I suggest to you today that God spoke the whole 400 years and just there was nobody listening. That's another message for another day. But here's what I see in my finite thinking. God is getting ready to become a man. And from the portals of glory, he looks across the field. And he finds a treasure. And he says, okay, I'm buying the whole field so that I can find the treasure or keep the treasure. Listen, can I just tell you the purchase at Calvary, the blood that was shed, and he was doing it because of the treasure that was hidden in the world. What was the treasure that was hidden in the world? The treasure is you. The treasure is me. The treasure is the church, the group of believers that follow him. He recognized that in the midst of all of the people of the world, there was a treasure that was hidden amongst them. 
there was a treasure in the midst of them. And he thought it so powerful and so righteous that he became an ultimate sacrifice to purchase our salvation, to pull the treasure out of the field and bring the treasure with him. The Bible says by his stripes we are healed. The Bible says that he purchased our salvation through the shed blood of Christ on Calvary. It was the purchase of the treasure. He purchased you. The next minute that you don't think you're worthy, he purchased you. The next second that you don't think that you're good enough, he saw a treasure in you. And he paid the ultimate price for you. For greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus went even beyond that because the book of Corinthians says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, Jesus wasn't worried about just purchasing a few people. He wasn't just worried about purchasing the church. He purchased the whole deal. My friend, he has purchased every human being since the beginning of time. It's on his ledger. He owns them all. He has them all in his control. But what ends up happening is that he makes it and sees that amongst all of the crowds, there is a treasure that's right there. Yeah. You see, we are the hidden treasure in the field. And here's what Jesus said. Anybody that wants to be a part of the treasure can. Can I just tell you, that should give us a whole different outlook on humanity. That should make us see people a whole lot differently. Because if Jesus was willing to purchase the field, you and I must be willing to walk in it. You see, a lot of times, as believers, we want to isolate ourselves. We want to separate ourselves from the world. Listen, there is a principle in Scripture of separating ourselves from the ungodliness of this world, but nowhere in Scripture does it separate us until he separates the wheat and the tares, until he does the work. There's a, there, we have to be in the world, but not of the world. We are a treasure in the middle of the field, and the field has been purchased by God, and God has put an open invitation to anybody that's in the field, whosoever will, let him come unto me and drink. Whosoever I came to seek and to save, that which was love, I'm here for you. You're my treasure, but I purchased the field. And so we get to the passage that we opened up with. You see, all mankind has been paid for. But he's interested in the treasure. And so now he's calling his treasure unto him. And he's saying, come unto me, all ye that labor. He couldn't call that until he purchased the field. Listen, come unto me, all ye that labor. That word labor signifies more than just simple work. Believe it or not, even in 2020, work is a privilege. Just ask anybody that hasn't had a job for a while. Work is a privilege and a source of some measure of satisfaction. In one sense, nobody will ever be happy who is not in some way, shape, or form some type of worker. Worker or working is a safeguard against temptation. The Bible tells us that the idle hands are a devil's playground, if you will. That's Tim Sanders' version, 2021.
busy working, your eyes don't wander. If you're focused on your work for the kingdom, your ears don't hear the distracting sound of the enemy. When you become so in tune with the working of the kingdom of God, there is nothing that can get in your way. You ever thought about the reason why the workhorses have those flaps on the sides of their eyes? Keep me focused. Keep me focused. The root word for the word labor in scripture is it means to cut or by analogy toil as reducing the strength of something. How many have ever worked a full day and got home and were a little tired? It means work that is carried out at the price of willingness and pain. It is work that is so heavy and hard and futile that sometimes it becomes agony. It's work that has degenerated in the toil. The monotonous struggle that ends in lean achievement and utter frustration. An example of that would be Jesus sending the disciples said, go get the ship and go to the other side of the lake. And they obeyed with eagerness because that was what they did. They were former fishermen. They were veteran sailors. The lake had been their life. Jesus was asking them to do something easy. But in the middle of their excursion across the lake, a tempest comes up and the waves rise up and then they begin to labor and they don't get anywhere in their labors. They can't battle the sea, they can't battle the storm. The work at the beginning was turned into labor when Jesus showed up. They were straining far harder out uh, than, than they were when the sea was called and fighting against it, but they were getting nowhere. And strained as they might, all they could get out of it was weariness, pain, frustration. And I think today that many of us either feel that way or have felt that way recently. And Jesus has something to say today to the person who is exhausted, to the person who is worn out, to the person who is chewed up and spit out by life's circumstances. He offers rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. You see, the second group were those that were burdened. Come unto ye, me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Those that are burdened today. Those that carry weighty loads are hearing a personal invitation today from God Almighty. Come unto me. Burdens of anxiety. Burdens of fear and torment. Sin may have dominion over you or some member of your family or some situation that you're dealing with and you or they are held captive and you're robbed of all your spiritual or moral beauty. Loads of deep fear and anxiety and you're struggling under a burden of sorrow and a burden of disappointment. You once dreamed great dreams, but all of a sudden, those dreams seem to have come to nothing. You've traveled the road that promised to lead to greatness, wonderful adventure, but you've ended up in a cul-de-sac. Others are carrying burdens of self-will, like the gentleman in Arabian Nights, who out of kindness, took a feeble old man on his shoulders and gave him a lift, but once he was there, the old man refused to dismount. 
He was the old man of the sea, and he came a crushing weight on the shoulders of the one who tried to befriend him. Maybe you picked up a burden trying to help somebody, trying to assist somebody. But as you've done that, it's become so heavy that it is weighing you down and the burden that you chose to carry for some. Listen, the Bible does say, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But there are times when those burdens become so heavy that they are now your burdens that are weighing you down. Augustine said it this way. I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings that are very wise and very beautiful, but I never read in either one of them, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What did Jesus invite us to do with this day? He uses the word come unto me several times in scripture to the children in Matthew 19, he said, Suffer them and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In explaining the privilege of his presence in John 6, he said, I say unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of the Father. In explaining the Holy Ghost infilling, in the last day, the great day of the feast in John chapter 7, Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Here's the picture that Jesus is sharing with us that you and I probably don't get as well as somebody in that day probably understood. <clears throat> I have heard that in deserts, when the caravans were needing to find water, that the leader would take a, a man and put them on a camel and send them out some distance in advance of, of the group. And then shortly thereafter, after that one got going a further distance, he would send a next one out, and then the next one out, until they would hear. And what would happen is, as soon as the first man would find water, almost before he got down to drink, he would turn around and he would shout, Come! There's water! And it would be the old-fashioned telephone from one camel to the next. Well, one rider to the next. And they would shout, come, until it got back to the group and said, okay, they found water. I can go a little bit further. Come unto me is not a trite, empty saying when Jesus says it. It is descriptive of location. It is not the invitation of deity. It is the invitation of his humanity. Because in deity, he doesn't know what weariness is. His divinity and deity, interchangeable terms, he's never been tired. He spoke everything into existence. He always was, always has been, and always will be. But when he became like you and me, You see, part of the reason I believe that God could get frustrated with the people of the Old Testament was that he totally had not felt what you and I feel. But as a man, the Bible says in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Jesus began to walk around and he got a little pebble inside of his sandal. Irritating. Can I just tell you, read between the lines, if he felt and experienced everything that you and I did, can I just tell you that he probably wasn't always happy with Joseph telling him to clean out the carpenter's shop? Why do I know that? Because as a dad, I've asked two boys to clean their bedrooms. <laughs> And I remember what it was like when my dad asked me to do something. I hated smelling for about an hour and a half when I was growing up to two hours. Because invariably when it snowed, I would hear, Tim, time to shovel. Now you gotta 
understand my dad. He didn't believe in snowblowers. He had a 15-year-old snowblower. <laughs> and some of you have been to where I grew up, but the house was down on the lake, and there was like 55 steps going up to the street and two driveways. And God forbid the little kid Jeremy ever had to help me. <laughs> he helped every once in a while. Mainly after I left home. <laughs> so I knew what my reaction was. Oh, Dad, can't you just break down and get a snowblower? How much easier would it be? Okay, Tim, I'll go get a snowblower. Didn't mean a snowblower from 1910 that would barely start. That I had to push just as hard with that with it simple. But I always picture Jesus doing this. Oh, Dad, did I gotta sweep up all the sawdust? Dad, why do I have to put all your tools away? Dad, why? Dad. So by the time that Jesus gets a little bit older and he looks at his disciples and his disciples could not pray with him for one hour. Jesus was merciful and gracious because Jesus had already experienced everything that they had experienced. And when he looks at you today and you have messed up yet again, Jesus is long-suffering and merciful. And he says, I know what you're going through. Come here. You're a little bit weary today. You've been burdened today. Things that you've been disjointed to, just come here. I had a great-grandfather, Frank Sanders Sr., the, 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 the nuts have not fallen far from the tree in three or four generations. The more I look at it, the more I see senior in me. The more I look at it, the more I see junior in me. The more I look at my boys, the more I see all three of us in them. Help us, heaven. <laughs> but there was something that my grandfather always did. My grandfather did not get the height of the family. He was about 5'10". We'd go over to his house, all of the family, and he had five kids that all of them had, at least three kids, if not more. And we'd gather together in the house for Christmas or whatever, but we always knew what a certain motion meant. Grandpa would sit at the couch and he'd go like this and go, He was telling all his grandkids, you come and give me a kiss. Right there on the team. Come here. You aren't leaving until I get a kiss. I thought that was weird. Until I realized what he was really saying. I've got your back. Come here, let's connect. He wasn't a real wordsy guy. He didn't put his arm around you very often and say, Tim, I'm proud of him. But you get the finger. Come here. Right here. Can I tell you as a young boy, it spoke volumes to me. In that 30-second and the older we got, the more we dreaded having to do it. Yeah. But we did it anyhow. And from the day that I was born until the day he left this, this earthly existence, which just so happened, his funeral was on the day that my wife and I moved here to pastor this church. I knew Senior had my back. Have I always listened to him? No. 
Because one of his directives was always this. Preach it short. <laughs> You're laughing. What's that? <laughs> but you want to know what I picture when I read Matthew 11, 28 to 30? Picture my heavenly father. I tell you why I think that? My grandfather had another disability. He didn't tell time very well. He would say, Tim! And it wasn't just me, it was any of the cousins at any moment in time. Come on over to the house, I got a 10 minute job. <laughs> it turned into 10 hour jobs. Or 10 day jobs sometimes. He knew that we were going to be working on his behalf more than what he even said. And so before we would leave after one of those 10 minute jobs, it was always, I've just been 10 hours canoes and trimming it and you're wanting me to come Can I tell you what I felt? I know I've asked you to do a lot and you've done a lot, but I've still got your back. I've asked you to pray a lot. I've asked you to suffer. I've asked you to deal with some situations. I've asked you to fast. I've asked you to sacrifice. I've asked you to give. I know that. But come here. I know the blessings of working on the kingdom can at times become heavy and a burden and labor. But come here. I, I see what you're doing. I see the extra hours in prayer. I see the extra rejection from your family members. I see the extra shunning of your neighbors. I see the extra complaints, but come here. Let me give you some rest. You see, it's the privileged place for those with simple childlike faith that says what the writer in Galatians said, Abba, Father, Daddy, I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm worn. But he gives you And then, here's the thing that sometimes we don't understand in this passage, is how he gives us the rest, and then I'll be done in just a few minutes. This is how he gives us rest. Look at that passage uh, again in, in, in chapter 11. It, he says it this way, he said, take my yoke upon uh, you, learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart, you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Here's how he gives us rest. He invites us to yoke up with him. He invites us to take his yoke upon us. A better interpretation might be this. Take the yoke that I bear. You see, come unto me calls for a single act of decision, but taking on the yoke calls for a dedicated life. Take my yoke as an invitation to join a campaign for the kingdom of God. The idea of a yoke 
talks about a learning experience. Because here's what the yoke was in those days. If you've ever looked at the yoke of oxen, and, and when they would do it, one side of the yoke was always bigger than the other side. There was a big side for a big ox, and there was a littler side for a little ox. And what Jesus is saying is, come on, take my yoke upon you. In other words, come alongside me. You're going to have the little side. I'm going to do all the work, and I'm going to train you and teach you how to do it. So that when you become mature in me, you'll be able to put somebody else in my yoke and I'll be able to train them with you. You see, and when we do that, we begin to get the rest for our souls. Because he has put us together with himself and now we are working on his behalf and we are working under his anointing and we are working under his authority and his power and his righteousness. And when we work under all of that, it's not us that's really doing the work. We're just kind of along for the ride and we do what needs to be done based on what the older act says. You see, when the wise Savior tells us, go here and touch this life, it's easy to go and touch that life because we're not doing it of our own authority, our own power, our own enrichment, but we are doing it on behalf of the one that we are yoked to, and he's already made the way, he already knows how to do it, and he tells us to go, and we're able to go. And let me just tell you, if working for God and living for God has become tiresome, has become a burden, has become something that is heavy, then I, can I declare to you, it could be that you have stepped out of the yoke that you were under, and you have stepped under your own authority and your own power, and Jesus is saying unto you, come back unto me, take my yoke upon you once again, and learn of me, because I am going to teach you how to move. Can I tell you what God wants in 2021? He wants a group of oxen that will work the way he works and not the way a young oxen works. You see, those farmers would have those older oxen trained they knew which way to pull the plow. They knew how hard to pull the plow. They knew at which speed to pull the plow. They knew it all. And so they would take a young one and attach it to the older one so that by the time the older one was done working, the younger one was ready to go and would learn it. And they would end up having more than one person. Let me put it to you in King James English. Greater things shall you do than I have done. How could that be? How can we do greater things than Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ was one ox. And we are in the presence of 75. Think about that. For all you math whizzes, think about what compound interest does. Notice in the Old Testament, Saul sent his thousands. Didn't say David doubled up and did 2,000. What does it say? David sent his compound interest. Greater things shall you do than I have done. Listen, when God made himself finite for a moment of time when he became human, he could only do so much while he was human. But when he left this earth and ascended into heaven, and in John chapter 14, when it says, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you, he infilled us and empowered us, and he is now moving in the body of Christ, which is a lot more people now than there was when the body of Christ was literally on the earth. We now have, so if I can, if, 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 if I can do what Jesus asked me to do, and Chelsea can do what I asked Jesus to do, and Patsy can do what you, all of a sudden we triple what Jesus can Don't get me wrong, I understand it's all Jesus working through all three of us. But can I tell you something? There is nothing more refreshing, more energizing, more powerful, more reinvigorating than to see somebody that you have ministered to 
or a situation that God has released you in and watch them get it and watch them experience it. There is something that rises up in you that just, it's incredible to see. Can I just tell you over the last 12 years as the pastor of this church, the thing that has excited my wife and I the most is not when God does something for me or her. It's when we look across the congregation and God has done this for this person and this for this person. And all of a sudden there was a breakthrough in this life. And all of a sudden there was a breakthrough in this marriage. Can I tell you how restful that is? How invigorating that is? It can get to be a burden. But when all of a sudden the things of God begin to move, all of a sudden there is nothing like it in all the world. I want trade it for anything than to watch somebody else get a touch from God. He'll never force you to take this yoke. He'll never force you to come unto him. But I want you to know this, and this is my close today. Though it is our privilege either to accept or to reject the yoke of Jesus. It is not our privilege to reject all yokes. For if you choose not to elect the yoke of Christ, by default you are electing another yoke. Joshua said it this way, choose you this day whom you will serve. You have a choice to make. Are you going to come unto him? Are you going to accept this attractive invitation to come unto him and to take his yoke upon you, to learn of him, to be have rest for your souls? Or are you going to reject this invitation? But just be aware that by rejecting this invitation, you are accepting the yoke of another. Whether it be your yoke, whether it be the yoke of society, whether it be the yoke of your addiction, whether it be the yoke of your uh, agenda, whether it be the yoke of your job, you're going to take on some yoke. There was a philosopher by the name of Ovid, he said it this way, before you run in double harness, look well to the other horse. Notice what Jesus says. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Could I just tell you something or ask something? <coughs> uh, as oftentimes as you and I, as humans, try to take the easy way, Jesus declares what the easy way is. So why aren't we more accepting? Why do we fight Jesus on every turn? I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to answer a question to yourself. Has there been any time ever in your life when you tried to do it your way that it was easy? Where it didn't bog you down. Where it didn't mess you up. Where it didn't almost destroy you. Then why would you choose that yoke? open your eyes again. Choosing Jesus. I can't say the choosing is always easy, but once the choice is made, his burden is light. You want to know what? I bet you stand. This is how light his burden is. His burden is so light that he took away every responsibility that you and I have of sending somebody to heaven. Mm -hmm. 
But here's the thing. If you can't send somebody to heaven, you can't send anybody to hell either. In other words, all you can really do is live for Christ. And if Christ says, jump, we say, how high? And then we do our best to get there. But can I tell you what a lot of people get wearied about and burdened about? Is they're not seeing the results like they expect to see. Pastor, I'm tired of praying to God. I've been praying for 20 years and my daughter has not come back to God. I've been praying for 20 years. My son has not come back to God. Listen, that's not on you. That's not on God. That's on them. Can I tell you? I wish that all of my loved ones served God. And I will be there for any one of them. And I will love any one of them. But there's nothing more that I can do but pray and answer questions. It comes down to a decision that they make. Unless you get overly weary about it, there are people that are sitting in here who have come to God because of a parent or a grandparent that has been praying for decades. Don't stop praying. You don't know when they're going to accept the invitation of the Lord and what will trigger them to and what will cause them to ask questions because we don't know what's going on in the solitude of their thinking. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am weak and lowly in mind. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You shall find rest for your souls.